Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Lindsay Stern. Nobody loves termites. We admire bees and ants for their industry and for their collective decision-making. But, as our guest today has written, while parents dress their children in bee costumes and animated ants star in DreamWorks movies, termites are at best crude cartoons on the side of pest control trucks. These bugs are also comparatively unexplored in academic studies. Between 2000 and uh, 2013, about 6,000 papers were published about termites. 49% were about how to kill them. Despite the fact that termites collectively outweigh humans 10 to 1, they have lacked a popular writer to bring them to the forefront of public attention. Our guest today, Lisa Marganelli, is that writer and champion for the termites. Her new book, Underbug, an obsessive tale of termites and technology, introduces us to the termites and the scientists who study them so we can see them and ourselves in a way we never have before. But this isn't just a fascinating book about nature's most underrated bug. What makes this book really special is that it uses termites as a new portal to explore some of the biggest questions we have about technology, power, morality, the nature of science and scientific progress, where we've come from and where we're going. A dazzlingly original thinker and storyteller, Ms. Marganelli spent over 10 years obsessively studying these bugs and the scientists who study them. As the author Mary Roach aptly put it, this book is about termites in the way the Bible is about men with beards. Yes, it takes you into the mounds and inside the bugs, but also deep into the strange labs and pulsing eclectic minds of the roboticists, geneticists, physicists, and ecologists who try to figure them out. Perhaps best of all, it takes you deep into the brain of Lisa Marganelli, one of our finest writers and most original thinkers. In addition to her new book, Underbug, Ms. Marganelli is the author of the national bestseller, Oil on the Brain, Petroleum's Long Strange Trip to Your Tank. She's also written for The Atlantic, Wired, The New York Times, and other publications, and edits the magazine Zocalo Public Square. Lisa Marganelli, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Thank you. Ms. Marganelli, to start off, how did you become interested in this topic? You were spending many years before this studying oil. How did you come to be the writer focused on termites? I didn't intend to start writing about termites. I was working on oil, and I heard that there was a project going on um, in Walnut Creek, California, which was close to where I was living at the time. Uh, it was a government lab called the Joint Genome Institute, and uh, which is run by the Department of Energy. And they were sequenced, scientists there were sequencing the genes in the microbes in the guts of termites. And the reason they were doing this is that termites can eat wood, which is why they destroy our houses. But um, the reason they can eat wood is that they have these symbiotic collections of microbes that, that digest the wood. And we wanted to build or to make biofuels at the time. So the idea was that if we examined closely enough the genes of termites' guts, we could then upload some of those genes uh, using sort of a technique called synthetic biology um, into new organisms and sort of create biofuel, fuels made from wood and grass and scrap paper um, in tanks. 
And so uh, I got kind of sucked into this world and and uh, at first I didn't really think much about the termites at all. I, I mostly was following the researchers and watching the crazy science that they did. And after the story was published in The Atlantic in 2008, they asked me if I wanted to go out on what they called a termite safari to actually gather termites in uh, Arizona. And I said, sure, because actually writing about oil all the time is quite depressing. You know, it's like really old problems, like 100-year-old problems. Choices were made a long time ago that locked us into this path of oil and climate change. And so watching this new thing take shape seemed really exciting. Um, and it continued to be exciting. They continued to ask me to go out on um, trips with them. Uh, I went on another termite safari to Nevada, and then I ended up going out with the same researcher to Australia when he and his lab moved to Australia. I did another termite safari in Australia. Um, and all of these things I, I saw just as sort of like a little vacation from oil from the sort of problems that I was thinking about in the beginning, uh, gradually termites came to be like the big thing that interested me. And I took on other stories about termites. So I started uh, following a researcher who was working in Namibia, which is in southern Africa, um, studying how termites build the really huge mounds there. And that kind of – that I was basically hooked. I think the termites actually took me. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're getting up – early about to go on one of these um, termites or on one of your um, expeditions on the termite safari either in Namibia or Arizona or Nevada, when you get in the Jeep and you get going and you look out at a landscape dotted with these mounds, what do you actually see? Okay. Well, if you're in Arizona, you see nothing. And it's kind of like the more nothing you see, actually, the more termites there are. Um, you don't need a Jeep in Arizona. You need like the smallest rental car you can get. <laughs> uh, but what happens is, you know, you're going through this like what looks like very scruffy desert landscape with like a little scattering of grasses and green leaves on the ground, um, a lot of old sticks or some old sticks and maybe some cow pies, uh, maybe some bushes, a few cactuses. Um, what was interesting to me is I was driving the car the first year and sitting next to me was a, a, a well-known American entomologist named Rudy Shefferin who's a termite expert. And Rudy could like sense termites in the landscape and when he did, he he knew what to look for which was perhaps increased greenery but also less stuff on the ground. It was hard to tell exactly. But he could – he would start saying, oh, there's termites here and he'd start twitching and then it was just like, oh, we're going to pull over really soon because Rudy feels termites. And um, <clears throat> so that's what you see in, in, in the US is that the termites are underground. Um, if you turn over your cow patties, you turn over the sticks, you're going to find signs of termites, but you're not going to find the termites themselves. Then when you're in Africa, the termite mounds are big. Like they, they dot the landscape in regular patterns that can go on for miles and miles. You know, at some places in Namibia, you're driving on the highway and they stretch out for on both sides of the road to the horizon. And um, – each mound is maybe uh, between 10 and 15 feet tall. They're shaped as though a fist punched up from underground made of dirt and then extended one big fat finger up at the sky. And then they're curved a little bit over to the north. And so they almost have this gesture as you're driving by them. They're like, you know, they feel funny. Like you feel like laughing when you look at them sometimes. Um, 
And so that's how you see them. You know, they're very, very apparent in the landscape in in Africa. They're totally cryptic in the United States desert. Um, and in other places in uh, South America, they're in the trees. And they're pointing at, an, at a slight angle, right? Yeah. Calibrated to the sun? Yeah. That's um, – so uh, those – Mounds. It turns out the, the the researcher who I was visiting in Namibia, um, Jeffrey Scott Turner, had done years and years of research on the termite mounds. And one of the things he discovered was that they are a dynamic process. I mean, we think of we look at the mounds and we're like, oh, it's kind of like an apartment building. You know, it's kind of they build it and then they live in it. But it's actually not. It's a whole process that they're continually building, and the mounds are continually being knocked down by rain and by. Um, you know, dryness and and then being hit by rain or being hit by uh, an aardvark or something that is actually whacking into them. So they're constantly falling and constantly rising. And he took years of time-lapse photography of this and found that basically the combination of the falling and the sun-driven rising ends up with those mounds leaning over at about the zenith angle of the sun, which is a really interesting example of kind of emergent calculation by the termites using little balls of dirt in their mouths, where where essentially a mound appears, but it's also kind of a calculation of the mound's presence in the solar system, place in the solar system, you know. And that's interesting, too, because you write in the book about not not just how this is manifested in terms of the mound's place in our broader solar system, but in a way how you can start to see the solar system or the universe almost in the mounds themselves. And so I wonder if you could describe what as far as we know, is going on in these mounds. Um, and, and particularly, you write in the book about how a termite in many, really can't be separated from a mound in a way, and that it's a different creature when it is, and that one of the scientists you talk to says, um, has a very memorable line where he says, a termite is not is, a termite does. And that the process and the togetherness which the termite has with its other termites is critical to its nature in this, in this way of an emergent property. So I wonder if, wonder yeah. if you could speak about what, what is the mound like? Okay. So first of all, termites are social insects. Uh, They evolve from cockroaches and um, they share their digestion with each other and they share their – the queen does all of their uh, reproduction, the queen and the king. Um, Termites have – there's 3,000 kinds of named termites. They have all different sorts of strategies. So I'm I'm giving you like the basis, the the most basic outline of what – goes on in these situations. Um, termites are super inventive evolutionarily. So uh, so the queen does all the reproduction and the king is in there with her and the they have workers and they have soldiers and the, the workers and soldiers are essentially uh, children forever. They are, their development is suppressed by the queen uh, by a pheromone. So that's a, a sort of a chemistry that gives a signal to a, – a smell essentially that gives a signal – to the bodies of these of these termites not to develop. So the workers become workers. <clears throat> the soldiers develop in a different way. Their heads get big generally. Their bodies get a little bit bigger. Their exoskeleton gets hard. Um, soldier Termite soldiers are basically defensive. So they some of them have wedge-shaped heads that they jam into the little holes in the mound to keep invaders out. Some of them have nozzles on their heads that squirt like a a terpene chemical at invaders that freaks them out and scares them off. And um, some of them have snapping mandibles. So this is the basic architecture of the mound or the basic architecture of the community. 
in these mounds in Africa, uh, the mound goes up 15 feet in the air. But that is essentially they. I guess we have to back up a little bit because the 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 termites are often described as a superorganism, which is a really helpful way to think about them. It's not super helpful scientifically, but it's helpful to think that the termites together constitute kind of a body and that – so think of it as all the termites are together. The workers are sort of like the mouth and the stomach. The soldiers are kind of like the immune system. The edges of the mound are kind of like the skin. The mound itself, these these particular macrotermes mounds, function sort of like a lung uh, because it, it cycles air in and out. And then these particular termites also have a fungus in the basement that they tend to. And that fungus, um, metabolically, it's much larger than the termites. Uh, basically, the termites run out. They gather dry grass. They bring it back. They form it into little balls. They inoculate it with a fungus. And they arrange these balls in this elaborate little sort of like graham cracker pie crust um, manner that ends up kind of being a vaguely brain-shaped uh, structure that they build. It's Nobody knows how they do this. Uh, they obviously have rules. And then the fungus dissolves the grass and makes it into sugars. And then the worker termites run down and slurp the sugars off the fungus and run around and distribute this amongst they, – they feed the queen. They feed the king. They feed each other. They feed the soldiers. The soldiers can't feed themselves. So they also have like a communal stomach. So that's the sort of structure of the superorganism or what we think of as a superorganism is that they – together, the, the termites essentially make a body. And so that's like a super rich metaphor because you can – then you can turn on yourself and you can think like, OK, well, I've got an immune system and how are all these cells cooperating together and what keeps them together to make me me? And it's also very interesting to think about – for example, when a mound dies, um, the mound will stop the processes that keep it alive and that provides a very interesting way of looking at, at us and what it means to be alive is that all of your cells are still all doing their jobs and all going in the same direction and your microbiome is going with you too. And when that basic chaotic order and homeostasis starts to fall apart, then that's you know when you fall apart as well. So, Yeah, you, I think you quote a scientist in the book who says, why does it make sense to ask um, whether a termite's alive but not whether a mound is alive for the reasons that you mentioned, given that it's such a complex system mm -hmm. that it feels as though in some spooky sense there might be some imminent um, consciousness operating there, which various science fiction writers have explored. Well, that's Jeffrey Scott Turner who spent a lot of time – like he's a physiologist and he spent so much time working with the mounds. And the question is, is, is the mound sort of an extension of the termites kind of togetherness? And he's also the person who said a termite isn't is so much as it is a termite is does. Um, and so he has spent a lot of time kind of thinking and doing experiments to fully understand how it is that um, the termites do this are, are sort of more than the sum of their parts when they're together and what this phenomenon is, this emergent phenomenon, what the mound is, what the mound does and 
sort of its its place in the universe. And, and, and to some extent also he's very interested in how termites as a group within the mound kind of think how the termite mound functions as kind of a cognitive space for the the termites, not a, not a consciousness, but a place where there is kind of a thinking amongst the parts or a, an understanding amongst the parts that emerges. Um, and so it's very, very rich. In thinking about the history of how we've learned about termites, there's a very interesting discussion in the book where you talk about a particular um, book published in 1937 by a South African writer called The Soul of the White Ant, which was one of the early in-depth imaginations of termite life. And, and, I, and I wonder about this with regards to what you've just been saying about metaphors of the body with the mound, how in the book you think about the role of metaphor in, in science and in storytelling in that in some ways we're inherently, as you write, you know, limited to metaphor, but um, at the same time it's necessary, of course, to use human language, yet that human language when it's in terms that limit our thinking is, can be inherently problematic as well to understand nature. Yeah. Uh, the Soul of the White Ant is just a fascinating book. Um, it's It was basically a compilation of Eugene Moray's newspaper articles that he'd written over the years. And Eugene Moray was a South African who sort of um, fell out of favor with the government. He ended up out in the veldt. Uh, his wife also died in child or shortly after childbirth. Uh, and he ended up kind of out in the veldt watching the termites. And um, and he really, uh, the concept of the superorganism was really new then. And he really sort of worked on it and thought a lot about it. But he also, you know, he had kind of a Freudian bent. He was taking all the big ideas that were out there and kind of centering them on the termite mound uh, at that time. Um, and he he really used the body as a way of thinking about the termite mound and uh, – but he's not entirely scientific. He's what he is is he's an amazing observer and an amazing sort of synthesizer of big cultural ideas. There's a lot of other work that's been done on termites um, that was, you know, it. The reason that we call them kings and queens is because the early sort of explorations of termite mounds and and even beehives were done by people who grew up in monarchies, uh, Europeans who grew up in monarchies, and they saw the social insects as a reflection of. Um, the rightness of a monarchic way of organization. And so that's why we call them queens instead of, you know, a captive ovary or, um, you know, the X termite and the Y termite. You know, there's many things that we could call them. The soldiers and the workers was also seen as reflective of this right way to live um, in this kind of enlightenment, uh, you know, I guess, Enlightenment period, really, where they were looking to nature to sort of provide evidence of what they thought God's will was. So this stuff is really buried in us. Like, you can't really have a conversation about termites without talking about queens, and yet we know that the termite queen is not a queen. You know, she's she's a being that is very confusing to us in many ways, but she's not a queen. Um, it's really hard, I think, for scientists. It's really hard for humans to work without talking about, um, without using metaphors. That is, if the if the termite mound itself is sort of a cognitive structure for termites, we also have a brain that has a distinct architecture, and that architecture gives us certain limits to being able to think about things like how bugs move and what the relationships are 
between bugs without kind of projecting other narratives on them. And one of our biggest narratives is that they are little humans in insect suits <laughs> giving us a demonstration of the way life ought to be. And this kind of – this bleeds over. You have at different times they've been described as utopias. They've been um, – described as kind of eugenic utopias in very scary ways. Uh, there have been sort of racist things have been applied to them and then kind of ref you know, suggested that they would reflect back on society that racism was correct. Uh, they've been seen as feminist utopias. <laughs> the list just goes on. Whatever we have, at, we throw at them. But one of the things that actually persisted until pretty recently was the idea that um, they were working sort of like like little drones in a factory, like they were the ultimate sort of totalitarian worker uh, who had to go to work and everybody was working all the time. Um, and that's something that's kind of fallen apart in the past decade or two. So interesting. So they become a metaphor for our understanding of what we're doing as a society yeah, and what a, we are. Morality, yeah. Because now you mentioned in the book too that the, the current metaphor is that they're more like neurons. Mm -hmm. Interesting. There's a line I think by Heisenberg where he says he's talking about the scientific method, which I think this gets to a, a question of the philosophy of science, which is that science ideally is supposed to give us the world objectively stripped of all the baggage we project onto it based on our subjective experience. But there's this line where he says, we, don't, we shouldn't forget that what we observe is not nature itself, but nature exposed to our method of questioning. And I think that one of um, the triumphs of this book is that it kind of, in a completely original fashion, models a kind of observation where we get a clearer view, at least my take on it is that we get a clearer view of the termites not despite, but because we get such a clear view of the scientists and the diversity of approaches they take to these subjects. So I was curious, at, at what point in the long process of exploration that became this book, did you realize that termites were a gateway to thinking about science? I think I saw it in, in stages. I, when I first came into this, I tended to accept science as science, as a discipline and a practice, and that they uh, – I also assumed that all science was essentially the same, that everybody had their same idea of what data was or evidence or theory. So I hung out with the, the – you know, there's a different, different sorts of scientists in the book, but to give you a little example, there's, there's geneticists – uh, who did metagenomic analysis, like very, very, they were really saw animals as their genes. And then, um, then there were entomologists who really see them as specimens and uh, taxonomic examples that fit within a historic definition of different kinds of termites. I mean, they really, they'll open up a book and they'll say, oh, this is what was seen in 1931. And we know because it's got these bumps on its head. And so, so that's what their evidence is, is like really, really close, minute observation of particular species types. Then, then you had um, Scott, who was a physiologist and his strain of biology did all sorts of experiments but they were also kind of at the same time looking at big ideas and big systemic ideas. Then um, at that same site, there arrived a bunch of computer scientists and robot builders uh, who were from Harvard's Wyss Institute led by Radhika Nagpal and some of them 
really were looking for a different kind of evidence. They they just they wanted basically to record what termites did in a given situation again and again and again and then be able to reproduce those odds in say a robot. So if the robot if the termite sniffs the end of the tunnel and turns left 60% of the time. They wanted to build sort of an algorithm so that their robots would sniff the end of the tunnel and turn right the same amount of the time. So that was sort of their idea of evidence was something that was reproducible. But uh, And so then there were ecologists and there was mathematical ecologists who also the ecologists deal with big pieces of land and different types of surveys and the mathematical uh, biologist deals with models, which are a whole different thing. And so each of these things um, is actually a really different sense of what evidence is and even how you use intuition. You know, some traditional biologists, they ha- their observational skills are highly, highly honed and they, they can really see a lot. Some uh, Disciplines like computer science really distrust intuition. Like intuition is nothing. It doesn't exist. And so – but any scientist is always having battles between intuition and and evidence and what constitutes evidence and what constitutes a, a theory. Um, so there was – all of this kind of stuff would sometimes even happen in the field where different groups would have different senses of what was going on. Um, but I think it also happened very much in their heads and in their – uh, in the labs, um, people were having intense discussions with themselves about what they were seeing and what constituted evidence and how not to jump to conclusions. But what's interesting is is that certain fields have more room for intuition, which is – intuition is a weird human thing because it's beyond our consciousness, our conscious understanding to some extent. Like you take in – a bunch of data, you take in a lot of stuff very objectively, but then there's some hidden sense, you know, some sixth sense, which is, you know, maybe wrong, could be terribly wrong. It's generally wrong, but it also has insights that are sort of at the edge of our brain ability. And so in the – late in the book, um, the mathematical biologist Corina Tarnita is looking at a field. She's standing next to an ecologist. Um, they see one pattern in the field from the termites that's kind of polka dots. And she says, you know what? Let's go get the truck and I'll stand on top of it because I think I see another pattern here. And she and the ecologist she was with had an idea of what happens with grassroots that and how the grassroots and clumping happens. And so he was like, no, I don't think it's a pattern. I think it's just clumping. And she stood in the back of the truck and she was like, no, no, I think there's a pattern. So she went back and she came up with a model. And it actually explained a lot of how this land works because she was able to sense that or intuit this other pattern at work amidst the polka dots. That's really an amazing story. And it, it, it makes me think, especially with regards to Lindsay's earlier reference to Heisenberg about the Heisenberg uncertainty principle in some ways with regards to how the scientists view this, if the idea being like you can't measure both the um, speed and the position precisely of a particle at the same time. And likewise, you have these truths or particles, you know, if you will, about science or termite mounds, and you have all these different approaches, which in a way have are, are certainly true but incomplete. And you can kind of view the termite mound through all these different lenses, but it's very difficult 
to get a full sense and to have all those lenses on at once, which is where I think that the book and having, um, having really skilled science writers like yourself is a really enormous contribution because it gives the reader those viewpoints, at least, um, through different points. So you start to have some intuitive sense of what this whole is. You're still, still totally incapable, at least in my case, as a reader of, of truly comprehending it fully. But, um, but it's quite, quite exciting in that regard. You know, I think the one, one of the things that's interesting about that Heisenberg principle is that we generally look at science in tiny slices. Like if I'm going to do a story, if I work for a daily newspaper, I will make a bunch of phone calls and that's it. Um, working for a magazine, when I first showed up at the at the lab at JGI, they expected me to be there for just one day, and I was like, "No, no, I'm here for a couple months." And <laughs> and then they had to like go talk to their media guy, and he was like, "Yeah, this that kind of magazine, she's going to be on and off for a while." So I kept showing up, and the story kind of matured. Um, you get an entirely different picture when you hang out over this many years and you watch what happens because. You get to see the failures. You see how the failures work with the successes. Um, you see how big questions can lead to really big um, kind of revelations. You know, the Scott Turner, the, the um, researcher in Namibia, his work was interesting and funky, but it didn't get that much attention. But he was asking these huge questions. And those questions were so interesting. He's been able to draw in all kinds of people from all over the world. There's a a neuroscientist from India. There are a bunch of physicists from Harvard. There's the the roboticist from Harvard. Um, There's a uh, a wonderful engineer from uh, England who's been collaborating with him for years. And they have managed to sort of plumb all these different things about the mound that are really driven by these big questions. And if you just looked at the big question for a month, you'd say, "Mm, I don't know about these big questions. Like maybe you're better off just really doing like 150 repetitions of one thing. But you really see over 10 years that big questions have like a snowball effect. And you also start to see the the interplay of personalities and, um, and how this kind of big picture of technology development works. I'd love it, too, if you could talk about, you describe in the book how the different types of scientists seem to have distinct personalities, and then simultaneously how these scientists have discovered that the individual termites seem to have different personalities as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and the, the book, I should also say, has an absolute ton of personality to add, <laughs> to add that. <laughs> that was the big challenge with termites. It was like, How do you make a bug interesting, a little bug that's sort of anonymous? Well, so when I started the the book, um, the the sort of working premise of termites was that you could model them with a little robot. And so in a way, that goes back to Descartes, who said that animals are soulless automata. That was kind of a shortcut for Descartes to really talk about how how animals had kind of an engineering rather than – it was – it was a shortcut for him to talk about a lot of things. One of them was that he could talk about biology without getting too heavy into religion. So he could sort of separate biology from religion. So it's not actually literal. But these days, because we like to model things with robots and with computer simulations, it's 
you know, it's a it's a useful sort of shortcut for us to talk about, well, what is a termite going to do? This kind of working model was that, well, a termite is like a little uh, object that goes forward and it makes decisions not based on history, but always generally based on what's in front of it. Uh, and those decisions might be random or they might have tendencies, uh, you know, to one side or another. What happened was the termites didn't really act the way they were expected to act once they were under the uh, once they were kind of in experimental situations, you can put 25 termites in a dish and nothing will happen. And then you put the dish off to the side outside the cameras and then you come back and they've built something and it's ridiculous. So it's really hard to like set these things up. But um, one set of termites in dishes was recorded and when they got it back to Cambridge, um, one of the researchers, Kirsten Peterson, decided that she wanted to know what was going on in that dish. So she actually developed a tracker with a couple of other people in the lab and uh, and with an entomologist named Paul Bardunius. And they, they developed this uh, tracker that could follow each individual termite around the dish and kind of see what it was doing. In order to do this, she and somebody else had to do like 200 hours of hand tracking the termites, which is just – you know, talk about the robot. That's the human poking away on the computer and, and tracking each individual termite's move. But they tested the software against the real-time tracking, the real tracking, and were able to come up with something that was quite good. And what they realized was that the termites were not actually easily modeled by sort of robots or, or computer agents. They seemed to have personalities. Um, many of them were screwing around. Some of them seemed to ha be charismatic and they seemed to be able to get other termites to help them build. And so some were building and digging and some and encouraging others to build and dig with them. And others were just like wandering around and, you know, who knows what they were doing. Maybe they were sniffing and looking for the next big digging opportunity or maybe they were – who knows what they were doing. And it was really kind of a revelation. There were individuals – the termites themselves were individuals. And to think of that there's a mound of 5 million termites and they're individuals, that's kind of a big thing. <laughs> it brings us back to the uncertainty principle too with the individual termites versus their activity. There's You talk in the book also about when you reach a certain threshold numerically of termites – this magical thing happens where suddenly they be begin to behave collectively very differently. They start herding around a few of yeah. 40 termites, right? What is that about? And does it – it's like if, does it continue on up that if you have 100, they start behaving differently than at 40 or – Well, I, I haven't done like those termite experiments. Um, I mean I saw when you put 10 in a dish, they kind of wander around 25. Then when you start getting larger numbers, they'll start running around. They – something about – being a termite, I think, is about being with other termites. They're constantly touching each other. They're making sounds that communicate with each other. They all have a, a, a little – a unique hydrocarbon on their cuticle, so they all smell the same. So they're super sensitive to new smells. They're super sensitive to – they're touching each other constantly. They're constantly um, exchanging uh, – like uh, they're, they're exchanging fluid from – in their mouths and their mouth to butt. Uh, and they're constantly doing that and they will groom each other and beg each other or seem to beg each other for those drops of, you know, the juice that's full of their own microbes. So they're very – they're constantly social. And so perhaps when they're running around, they're all right next to each other. They feel it and they can hear it and they are part of it just as, you know – um, we feel something when we're all running together or if you've ever 
pulled on like a, a rope pull or something like that and you the person in front of you is doing something and you do the same thing and you you all work on the same thing and you you suddenly feel whole um that's my best guess of what it's like to be a termite <laughs> but the fact is we have no idea <laughs> Um, and yes, we know that they will uh, – one of the things that happens when you smash into the side of a mound, the termites at first are sort of all running around randomly and then they very quickly form these very focused streams that are running directly towards where the break was. Um, they're following a gradient of, of fresh air smell. So the, as the fresh air gets more distinct, they, you know, they run – they run more towards it and then they drop these dirt balls that they're carrying in their mouths right at that break area uh, and they make piles of dirt that – dirt balls that eventually make a little wall and they wall off that incoming fresh air. So they're and, – and when you watch them just over the first 10 minutes after you knock over a mound, they start being kind of gauzy and, and, and diffuse and then suddenly they're in these focused streams and they're really – that really gets a lot of work done. So, you you write in the book a lot about the nature of scientific progress, and you talked about how so much in terms of our language and culture, whether it be the monarchies or the factory assembly line, shapes how we see science. And then you also talk about in the book how science then, in all sorts of ways, shapes our culture. And in particular, you write in a very moving way about being in Namibia, studying these termites, and you have downtime on the expedition, and so you start reading widely, some of the books of which are about um, the machine gun. And I wonder if you could talk about that metaphor and the meta as, yeah. as, you, as you're learning about this technology being developed um, with the termite robots potentially as we're trying to understand this and how science is being used and how that's completely unpredictable and, and what drew you to, to that metaphor in particular. Sure. So what happened was I, um, I, was, I had some downtime and I had brought a bunch of books and one of the books that I brought was a relatively new History of Namibia book and uh, I started reading it and realized that uh, I think in 1904 – so Namibia had been a German colony um, but Germany was really hesitant about putting more money into the colony because it wasn't working out very well for them. And at a certain point, the, the Namibians who were – there were many different ethnic groups there. Um, some of them were very, very good uh, military. They had very strong military senses and uh, were very good at uh, doing military things. It essentially began to take back over the country. And one of the uh, generals, von Trotha, uh, decided that it was time to put a stop to the Namibians uh, taking back the territory essentially and occupying the territory and taking over people's cattle. So they uh, – Germans' cattle. So they um, basically surrounded a very large encampment of them and with machine guns, which was a new weapon and it had only been used in foreign countries. It, European countries were buying it, but they didn't see it as something that could be used in European wars, which they saw as having to do with chivalry and right behavior and, and cavalry and things like that. The machine gun was being used very specifically in places like Sudan. It was used in Tibet um, and it was used by European powers at, at, to contain people. Um, and to kill them. Uh, so they, they placed machine guns around this very large encampment and they began firing and the only place that was open was the desert side. And so people ran into the desert where they were chased by what was called cleansing patrols. A lot of this language comes up 
you know, uh, 30 years later as, as the Holocaust starts. And then they opened concentration camps and a huge number of Namibians were killed. That, that led me to read more widely about how it was that this genocide had happened. And it turned out that, you know, the technology of the machine gun had essentially enabled something that wasn't really possible before, but it combined with various ideas that the Germans had, uh, that Europeans had about what they were doing in Africa. And one of those ideas had to do with people, they believed that people were going to die out there and they were going to get that territory. Um, and that the, you know, this, the genocide sort of fit in with this idea. I suppose that was, uh, you know, kind of about the time that I thought, well, I wonder how we'll use these technologies that we're developing. Because it, before that, I had been fairly um, optimistic about the technology that was coming out of termites. The, the possibility of making biofuels from termites seemed like a great idea, the sort of thing that could really help the climate. Um, the possibility of, of robots that could work in a swarming pattern also seemed like a very positive thing. Um, but I think one of the things in the history of humans is that when we have technology, we uh, it enables us to do things that weren't previously done. Um, one of the phrases that was used about um, – uh, not exactly about the machine gun, but one of the phrases that came up was that it allowed an abstraction of power so that you could project power from Europe all the way through this technology, all the way to some far-off place in Africa – you can see us doing that today. We have drones. Um, we have drones that we're using in Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, we have drones that we're using. Um, I don't know whose drones exactly are being used in Yemen. At times, there have been American drone bases there. Uh, so, drones are uh, sort of the next big projection of power or abstraction of power. Um, some of the things that are not, the scientists that I was talking to were not developing things for the military at all, for the drones. But this technology will definitely ultimately be used in some way by the military. And it's the sort of thing where we – the weird thing about the military is, first of all, a lot of the innovation in the United States is actually done through the military. So it's not surprising. You know, we have Velcro. We have cell phones. We have so much of what is around us, the internet, the, just the way we're talking right now is all things that were developed through the military. The other thing about the military is that there is an opportunity for citizens to get involved and to decide that we're going to stop something. So that's why we don't have certain types of nuclear weapons. Um, it's why we don't use uh, nerve gas is because citizens got involved. So essentially there is – an odd demo potential for democratic control, but it's also something that we need to realize and think about. It's interesting when you're talking about the scaling of power, it reminds me of um, Freud's concept of technology as a prosthetic god. And But one of the great ironies that you point out is that so much of of the knowledge that has enabled that prosthetic god, so to speak, is drawn from the so-called lowest beings on the um, kingdom of on the termites beetles uh -huh. there's been some a lot of research on suction of <laughs> beetle legs on developing military technologies too yeah i i mean i i think so much of being an american is using oil and uh having this 
military that both protects us and projects power um, and and projects around the defense of oil routes uh, and also develops technology that it's, you know, it's it's pretty striking when you think of it. I mean, we're sort of soaking in it, so we don't think of it. We think of these, th- you know, this seems surprising. But in fact, as I came to realize that it really wasn't surprising at all. It was simply that I had 10 years and time to think about it. Well, you, you, you've just published recently this Tour de Force book, but I wonder, based on the topics that you've been studying in this book, do you have other books in the hopper that we can look forward to? <laughs> I don't know yet. I, I had uh, in my town, uh, I am on the CLAM committee, and we do – I live on a, in Maine, uh, and we have some clam flats, and the clams have been eaten by an invasive green crab. And um, the green crab is there basically because of uh, warming of the waters off the Gulf of Maine. Some people have suggested that my next book should be about clams, but I have to say clams have less personality than termites. <laughs> and I don't have any expectation that anyone's going to discover that clams have individual personalities or that I could even begin to understand what that means. So I think what all I can say is I don't think it's about clams and I don't really know what it is going to be. Can I just ask one more thing? Mm-hmm. Um, what you were talk- When you were talking about um, writing and Viveka's question about metaphor, I just had a question about um, how you navigated, if you did, the choice to become a nonfiction writer versus a scientist. Because I feel like this book, there are so many moments of profundity in this book. I think you have a line about humor and frustration being two responses to the same <laughs> stimulus. And I just... I, I was so dazzled by that, and I wondered if if you how you think about um, the pursuit of truth in nonfiction writing versus in science, and if if you had felt pulls in the scientific direction versus the nonfiction direction versus fiction too. Wow, uh, that's a kind of a big question. So, <laughs> I think when I was in high school, I thought I would be a scientist, and then I actually took a summer program where I did writing, and I really liked the writing, and I really liked the interpretation. Part of what got me into this book was that hanging out with the metagenomic researchers, the geneticists, was so creative. They had to think in so many different ways, and they were making such wild leaps in these mountains of data, um, or actually databases. I mean, it's worse than a mountain. Uh, so they that was very—I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I, I could. I didn't have the postdoc that was necessary to to participate. These you know scientists study for a long time and they they memorize a lot of things. And in the humanities, you learn to kind of like skitter between things and make connections. And of course, you memorize things, but it's not quite the same kind of education that you're getting uh, for science. I came to really enjoy watching the scientists. That that was really fun. Uh, and and watching the way they think and asking them questions about how they were thinking and, and what they were having to not think about was really, really interesting. As far as fiction and nonfiction, early on in writing, I thought that what I wanted to do is fiction. And I came to realize that what I wanted to do was to use fictional techniques with nonfiction. And that worked particularly well because what I do well is hanging out for a long time in places. I tend to distrust the first thing that I see or the first thing that I think I understand. I like to hang around long enough until 
what I thought I understood coming in has fallen apart. And then I'm able to see it in some new way or even just to admit that I don't really understand it. That's actually the best. Um, and then go back. And when I'm writing, I try to put it together in a way that makes sense. In writing this book, I wanted to actually – the story takes a lot of little turns. And the idea was to sort of mess a little bit with the way science narratives usually go, which is normally that somebody starts off with an idea and then they progress and through strength of character and some lucky breaks and – um, and brilliance, they uh, arrive at the end where they have an answer. In this case, I, you know, I I knew by like 2016 that I didn't have an answer, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but that everybody was working as hard as they could, and they all had great strength of character, and they were all incredibly brilliant. And so I began to think about that narrative, and I. Um, basically, it goes in one direction and then it kind of will torque to another direction. So it has a deliberately slightly zigzaggy feeling to the narrative. And the other thing I was hoping to do through that was to make people think a little bit differently, to like sort of change your thinking a little bit from the beginning of the book to the end. Thinking about books that have changed your thinking, we like to ask our guests to close for two or three books that have changed their thinking about animals, both human and non-human. I'm curious, are there two, it could also be films, two or three books that come to mind? There's a book called The Peregrine that is by a guy who sort of follows this bird around, and it's incredible. So that one I really like. I love Moby Dick. I can't even, like the combination of the natural history stuff with all of the social stuff that's going on it's so modern to me. I mean, it feels like it was written in the 1970s. Lisa Marganelli, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It was really a pleasure. I don't get to sit around and talk about termites very often. <laughs> Neither do we, and it's been a great joy. Thank you, too, to our great producer, Ryan McAvoy, and the Yale Broadcast Studio and the Yale Human Nature Lab for making this episode possible. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org. Thanks for listening.